0: Good morning listeners, I am King 13 and welcome aboard the Sobertown train. Today we're going to be riding with my good friend Jojo 1986, who is going to talk and chat to me about her life in and before sobriety. But first I want to let you listeners know a little bit about Sobertownpodcast.com. Basically it's a comprehensive website with helpful information regarding sobriety. There's nearly 190 podcasts, there are blogs, there's a fantastic resources page That you can go to. We've got links, photos, and just so much more. And it is growing every single day. So, basically, what it's going to do, it's not going to only broaden your education on sobriety, which it did for me, but motivate you to stay on the Sober Town train track. So, please do yourselves a favor and check it out. It helped me more than you could ever imagine. I mean, I had nowhere to go when I was starting out. And even now that I'm still on this journey, seven months into it, I still go there and I still listen to people's stories. And it really makes me feel like I'm not alone. And speaking of not alone, riding with me, as I said today, is my good friend Jojo1986. So how are you on this good Florida morning, Jojo?
1: I am doing great. How are you doing, Deb?
0: I'm fabulous, and it's really good to see you, girl. I was just going to say, you and I have spent many a Friday night together, in the nicest sense of the word. We have. Yes, we have. <laughs> it I'm is yeah, we get together on a Friday night, just the girls, and we have our little zooms, and it really is like a Friday night hangout. It's kind of funny. It is, yeah,
1: alcohol free, just conversation, hang with the girls.
0: It is, and it's a really good decompressor on a Friday night. I mean, I know how hard you work, and um, I remember when I was, you know, in the career days and just stressing, 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 and then at the end of the week, you know, we go to the pub. <laughs> And that was where we would decompress. And now I've learned a whole new way of decompressing. And I really recommend to everyone, when you get home, take half an hour for yourselves, no matter what you're doing, decompress, then only then can you give your, you know, the best of yourself to your partner, your kids, your dog, yourself, as I said, your friends, whatever. But it's really important. My husband and I do that all the time. Oh, yeah. You know. That's
1: critical. Cool. You have to take care of yourself.
0: You gotta take care of yourself. All right, Jojo. Now we're gonna dig deep into your world. Um, okay, I'm gonna hand the reins over to you. Do you tell me a little bit about, you know, Jojo, 1986, and how it all began and where you're at?
1: Sure, sure. Um, I grew up in a fairly large family. Um, in a small town. And I started drinking at like 14 because it was there. It was available. And I didn't have much parental supervision. My parents would go away for days at a time and leave me a 14-year-old in charge of my 16-year-old brother and my two younger siblings. So, um, and then my older brother would throw parties, of course. Parents aren't having parties in the house. So alcohol was easy, easy, um, for me to get as a 14 year old i mean we had kegs on the back porch on you know friday nights so um and then it was you know drag racing down country roads and drinking and all of those things and then at 17 i decided i needed to leave i needed out and i joined the marine corps and if anybody's ever been in the military or the marine corps it's about the weekend parties i mean you, you make it through the week and there is some drinking in the barracks on weeknights but for the most part the weekends are just wide open um it's just part of the or it was then I think it still is part of the military culture and from there I went into restaurants and restaurants in the 80s and um the 90s were insane absolutely insane and I tell the story about people doing lines of coke on the wait stand and I was <laughs> in the kitchen we didn't have the lines of coke and Debs is smiling so
0: <laughs> yeah well I, I you know the 80s and 90s were kind of crazy but uh, not that it I was into for- the, the coke but it was, geez I'll tell you what if we pounds some alcohol back but oh, yeah. yes it's all about okay. this is about you but go on yeah, I can yeah. Like no it's overly...
1: totally okay totally okay yeah. um it's always good to know somebody can relate to your experience oh yeah oh you know? yeah
0: honey i can yeah that's a
1: big part of this so i didn't do any of the heavy drugs at all i mean i didn't even smoke pot i drank and so it was pitchers of beer on the line and then like shift drinks at the end of the night and at that point like the most the hardest alcohol for me was like rum and coke that was it there was you know not much else so um after that I I mean I stayed in restaurants but I moved into the management side of it and um went to college and grad school and of course got my degrees in hospitality because hey why not it was easy and of course in college there's drinking too I did I went older but still drank and partied with my friends and then um when I met my now ex he drank really heavy and um Alcohol was easy. I mean, it was easy. You'd come home from work, you'd have a glass of wine, we'd hang out, we'd drink, we'd talk, and we'd drink until we went to bed. And it was just part of who we were and and what we did. And um, I got really sick. We couldn't figure out why. I finally got diagnosed. I have a rare disease. And um, it's like one in 25 to 50,000 people have it. And my body just doesn't protect itself. And drinking makes it worse, but I never made that connection. And I got really sick and my ex couldn't handle it. And my drinking started to spiral at that point and his drinking started to spiral. So it was a bad, bad combination and we needed a separating and then divorcing. Um, once we started that process, I moved, I don't know, 400 miles away basically, and um, started a new life. And when I first moved here, I hung out with one. I stayed with one of my girlfriends for a few months and I really didn't drink and I was okay. I didn't, you know, have to be problems. We drink once in a while on weekends, but it wasn't the heavy pounding my body with it. And when I got my house, that's when, that's when I totally started drinking um, really heavy. And I kept it kind of like a secret because I realized that something wasn't right. And that other mm-hmm. people didn't do this. Like I did it. And probably about a year before I started on my sober journey, one of my coworkers confronted me and, you know, came in my office, closed the door and, and I just flat out denied everything. Nope. Nope. Not a problem. Don't, don't know what you're talking about. Mm-mm, no. Mm-mm. Other people might do that. Not me, but yeah.
0: I was going to say now that co coworker, were you friendly with that coworker? Yeah, or? we were
1: close. We were, um, yeah, he, he is a, um you've heard me talk about him in the past but he he is somebody that cares about me and my well-being in fact has helped me like move and paint and and do things like that It's somebody who's actively involved in my life and yeah. um he saw it for what it was not for what I wanted everybody to see but he saw yeah. it because he was around me so much
0: so he was coming from a good place. He was really he was worried like, about your well-being, knowing that you had health issues yeah. and other things were going on with you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. He was completely coming from a place of kindness. And in yeah. fact, when he did it, if you didn't know what he was doing, you wouldn't have, because he, he came at it with the approach. Um, I said something about, I had a headache and he started with, well, you know, you know, hangovers and sometimes people drink a lot and, you know, maybe not you, but it's common and a lot of people do it. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It was, was like his wording. I mean, he did it in a very graceful way. Is he a
0: drinker himself? I'm sorry.
1: Does he Um, drink? No, not much. Yeah. Not much, but he has, um, number one, he's highly empathetic and highly intelligent. And, um, he has some experience dealing with things like this so
0: right okay now that was interesting because you said straight away "Nope, I don't have a problem it was I
1: mean it was like instantaneous (laughs) (laughs) not even think about it no 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 not me no not me and what
0: was what was the inner joe thinking holy shit he's on to me I was like (laughs)
1: literally I was like fuck me this is like so how can he tell you know it was like that." yeah oh yeah I'm like (gasps) oh If he can see it, who else can, you know, was, I mean, yeah. I was, oh, I was shocked and appalled at that point. Yeah, I really was.
0: So basically you planted the seed, I think, did he? Was that the first um, real seed that someone had come to you?
1: I knew, I knew, because I had bought this book called Almost Alcoholic. Yeah. And I had bought a couple other books over the years. I mean, I knew I had a problem, but I couldn't face getting sober. I couldn't face not drinking because drinking was was such a big part of my identity and it was a big part of my coping mechanisms it was how i coped and when you start that young then it it is a very ingrained it's just ingrained into you completely
0: this is so true you know um and it's as you go along in our journey um You know, it's like these little sockets keep getting plugged at, uh, plugged for me anyway, plugged back in and the light bulbs going on. I was trying to think back as to when I first really, it came to me that I was drinking heavily. And I'm starting to put that together too. That's why I ask you if that was the first time, you know. And like you said, going back to the history of your childhood, 14. 14. You were, I don't know if you want to expand on it anymore about why your parents weren't around and,
1: I can't really talk about why they weren't around, but let's just say there's a book, and I'm going to recommend this to anybody out there who had a rough childhood. It's called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents.
0: (laughs) That's beautiful. And
1: it takes, there's a list in there, okay? There's this list in the book, and it lays out the traits or part or the type or different parts of an emotionally immature parent right and it says yeah. if your parent has one of these one of these your parent is emotionally immature right one of my parents was the entire freaking list I kid you not was the entire list and the other one was the majority of the list and I was just like oh my goodness yeah. so my parents because of their upbringings weren't able to parent so they checked out completely they just they just said no we're not doing this we're going to go hang with our friends on weekends and we're going to go do what we want to do because you guys are old enough to take care of yourself
0: yeah and that's one thing I've learned as you know now being the age that I'm at looking back to my mother to my grandparents and all of us don't know our ancestry and where we have come from and I have discovered so many things that I'm still still discovering. And as a child, when you're put into that environment, and I could talk a lot about childhood trauma as well, yeah. you're influenced by your environment and what is happening around you. Your parents can love you as much as they love you. But if your environment is not cohesive and is, you know, it's like someone... It's like parents, I was reading about this the other day, that parents who everything's beautiful in the house, but nobody talks about anything, but you just feel that energy. You know that things aren't right. There's that tension. Mm-hmm. This is what I'm talking about. Children are like sponges. They will pick it up. They I do. too, like you, was the, I was the eldest, and I had to look after younger siblings. And you grow up very quickly, don't you? Hence, you go into the Marines at a 17-year-old. I can imagine you as a perfectly mature Child, really, because you're so young. Mm -hmm.
1: It's one of those things where we tend to say a lot of kids who who have been parentalized by their parents. I've had a lot of therapy, so I'm talking from the therapy aspect. No, it's
0: great. Please do. Um,
1: A lot of kids that are parentalized by their parents then carry this into adulthood. Okay, they've been responsible for everything, but most of all, we've been responsible for our parents' emotional responses. Right. And we have learned how to read people and situations so that we don't get exposed to anger and things like that. We, we do everything we can to appease everybody in the most unhealthy ways. And, and your brain kind of rebels against that. And, and alcoholism is an outcome of trying to shut that down all the time. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. It's just you're numbing yourself from the reality of what you're living. Or
0: you're numbing the pain.
1: Yeah, you're numbing the pain, and of, or, or you're stopping yourself from having to really address the issues you need to address to move forward because it's hard. It's so incredibly hard sometimes.
0: It is. And you don't want to relive it. I think that's no. the issue, too. It was easier no. to drink than relive it and go through, you yeah. know, like, because and even though you grow up, these memories of childhood, the tra- trauma memories stick in your brain. They just so vibrantly, don't they? They don't seem mm-hmm. to diminish. Like, well, how is it that we can go through life and remember some things about high school, some things about some people, yet this particular part of your life that was not the best is the most vibrant in your mind. I it's sort of I don't, you know, it's it's something you can't just say, oh yeah. And people when people tell you to get over it, and that's been said they to me have- a lot. Yeah, I did get have- over it and I got over it with the bottle. So thank you very much. Because look at where I was. Yeah.
1: Yeah, they don't. The people who are saying get over it have the idea that it, it's like you have to forgive the person to move on and, yeah. and just get over it, forget about it, everything will be fine. It doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. It just, your brain doesn't work that way.
0: And it's funny, you know, Joe, even through, because I was drinking for the good past for 40 years. And even when I was actively involved in my drinking, I knew one day that I was, this is strange, I was going to get sober. It was almost like I was writing this forward book about myself looking back, but I didn't have any idea how I was going to get there. I just knew that one day it was going to happen. I knew it was going to be pretty, pretty late. And it's, it's a really, really strange thing. And I knew that I'd have to address these issues. And that is the thing. If you don't address the issues, you will not change. You will not better yourself and you will never find inner peace there comes a time you've got to just do it for yourself. Hey, Jojo. So let's get back to what we were talking about. And we were talking about just having to parent the parents basically.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the hardest that, you know, when you're a kid and you're parenting your own parents, you're not getting what you need emotionally to be able to thrive and to mature. So when you become an adult, you then, do that with the people around you that you love because you think that is exactly how a relationship is supposed to work. And that is not a healthy relationship in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, when you're drinking Yeah,
0: you don't get any, you know, you've never received any of the nurturing, no.
1: right? Mm. You haven't had any of the nurturing. No, it and and when the nurturing is conditional, you know, based on your behavior, then that in turn you carry that into adulthood as well. So you think if somebody is just paying you attention, that that is love. And it could simply be just somebody paying you attention, but you equate that attention, then the minimal attention with love. And, and that's big. That's, you know,
0: right. Um, let's just go on from there. Just tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. So when kids are put in the role of being the parent to the parents, it puts a lot of pressure on them. And that then in turn makes them think that they need to take care of everybody around them all the time. And that's really not a healthy way to move into adulthood because then you think you're responsible for the needs and emotions and problems and fixing everybody's problems, everybody yeah. around you, you think you're responsible for that. And that's just not a healthy way to be. It really it's isn't. Just,
0: it's just so much for a child to have to bear. I mean, it's not their responsibility. You know what I mean? This is what we're supposed to have parents for. But like you said, unfortunately, the parents may have not have had great parents themselves. They may know a lot about parenting. I mean, let's face it, a lot of people have children at a young age and say, oh, I've got these children, (laughs) how am I going to cope? And I know for myself, if you've got a parent that's dealing with their own issues, um, it can be, you know, really tough for them. And it's only now that I've looked back and forgiven, you know, and I did get to a point where I forgave who I had to forgive for what they did and what I went through, um, because I did understand that they weren't parented that great, that they didn't have the greatest relationship with either their mum or dad. Um, and they went through a lot, you know. There was wars and all sorts of things back for our parents and grandparents. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: it sort of makes sense if you can put yourself in somebody else's shoes. And I, I really think it's a good step for, for children, if they can, to do that. Try and try and forgive your parents where possible because, you know, uh, you know, most parents try to do the best they can and a lot of them just aren't in situations to be able to give us what we, what we need. I think that's just my take anyway, personally.
1: Yeah. I know um, with me, it's yes. I understand where they came from, which helps me understand why they did what they did. But what I've learned as an adult is we can choose not to be that way. We can choose a different way of being um, but we have to recognize it. We have to recognize that we can change so we don't perpetuate those patterns onto someone else. That's
0: exactly right. And I mean, the thing is, yeah. you know, if you feel angry about it and you really have had some trauma in your life, and there are traumas that are, you mm-hmm. know, really impossible to want to forget your parent for. Right. I totally get it. I totally get that. It's going to yeah. take a lot of work. And some parents, who are really, really do severe things and maybe not worth forgiving. I um, mean, if it's intentional and they know what they're doing and they are a sound mind, well, mm-hmm. hell no, you know, you're better off not, not even going there. But I'm talking about the parents who may have substance abuse issues, who may be in the grips of, you know, poverty, who may not be able to hold jobs because of their substance abuse issues or whatever it may be. I mean, if you're talking about things like child abuse and I'm talking about physical, that's a whole different story. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about things that they just weren't high-functioning at uh, mm-hmm. and didn't do anything about it at the time because, let's face it, you know, I think that sobriety now is becoming more at the forefront of, you know, this generation. Oh, and we yeah. Are, you know, I know a lot more people, especially particularly now younger people who are joining our Zooms, who are aware and who are trying to make a change. And, you know, God love them just for trying to make a change. Because, I, you know, you you can look back and say, oh, hey, I wish I had done that. But, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda is not here anymore. But we can only do and change moving forward. And I do agree with you. There are a high percentage of people who can choose to Be different because I saw what I saw, you saw what you saw, and you know we became high functioning professionals in a normal world and contributed, and let it affect as much as it could have. It affected our—that's how we took it out on ourselves, but we didn't necessarily hurt anybody else and carried into the next generation.
1: Yeah, I think um, you know everybody has their own unique life story, and everybody has a different experience um, of, of traumas from their childhood or issues from their childhood. And it's a case by case, you know, um, I can't judge anybody, whether they choose or not to, you know, have relationships with their family based on things that happened in their past. And you're uh, right for some yeah. people, some people, it's a flat out, I can't have you in my life. And yeah. That's, that's yeah. exactly what it is. So I, I always just try to have an open mind when people talk about, you know, their families, because I know, I just know, you know, and yeah, I'll give them grace. Everybody gets grace. Everybody. And just
0: qu- quickly, I just want to touch on your siblings. How what? are they? Did they? Did any of them just turn out to be totally highly, you know? Um. Well, highly all of them, contributors of society. With
1: yeah, oh yeah. I mean my my brothers, all three, um, amazing. You know, amazing contributions to their communities and. And you know they've built businesses and and done just absolutely amazing things, um, but they've all dealt with depression and ADHD, and mm. you know there are drinking issues as well for two of them. And one just doesn't drink. He caught on. He caught on in his twenties. He caught on and he just said, you know, I'm not drinking. That's it. I don't mm. drink. Mm. Um, but you know the others have had issues, and and it's one of those things where it's familial it I mean I have uncles I have cousins that that are all in the same boat and we watched it growing up too so you know alcoholism is is a family affair it really it really is unfortunately
0: yeah I grew up the yeah. same issue watching our uncles and aunties fortunately my stepfather didn't drop a touch of alcohol and I think he was one of the the wiser ones too, although, uh-huh. um, you know, he lost his mum earlier from TB and he had it himself, but he never drank. And I think that was probably something that did appeal to my mom when she met him because my oh, biological yeah. father was so different. And they do uh-huh. say that whilst they can't pinpoint it, there are certain genes that do obviously, hey, because that's how we were programmed do right. you know, go throughout the, yeah, go throughout the, um you know, different stages of, of production in family and even with personalities and so that's why it's really good to know what you know your family history is if you can mm-hmm. oh, yeah. especially medically um and to know what your predecessors have you know passed on from um well it's good to hear that your brothers are doing well I mean yeah, my young my, my younger brother's fantastic too he was too young to know he was only two years old and this was happening to us and I was sort mm-hmm. of 56 years my, you know, younger than I am. But moving on, when you became a Marine, I think, oh, my God, I think about 17 joining the Marine. Yes,
1: 17.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's such a big, big deal for such what seems like such a young lady. So tell me was how child. that came about.
1: Yes, you were. I was a oh. child. So I, I started thinking about the military. I actually had a high school guidance counselor. And mind you, I'm intelligent. I I got a degree. You know, Um, I had a high school guidance counselor tell me point blank that I was not college material. And so, my what does that even mean?
0: What, sorry, what does that even mean, Joe? Like,
1: (laughs) it means, it means that she, she didn't think, like, I said, should I be taking college prep classes? And she said, well, you're not really college material. So, don't worry about it.
0: Okay. All right.
1: you got to remember this is the eighties. This is the eighties. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. And, yeah and okay. So, you know, so you're told that is like, I don't know. I think I was a sophomore in high school at the time when I was told that. And so I went mm-hmm. home and I told my mom and she goes, well, you could let go to community college, but we're not paying for anything. And so right mm-hmm. then and there college became out of my reach. You know what I mean? I didn't understand about scholarships or anything, but when you don't have that encouragement behind you telling you that you can do it, why are you even going to, you know, how do you know what to do? Especially since nobody in your family at that point really had a college degree. I mean, my mom had like associates at that point, I think, but yeah. So I, I had this idea then that I wasn't college material. Haha, you were wrong, but, um,
0: yeah, (laughs) I,
1: my older brother went in the Marine Corps. And I originally talked to the Army recruiter, and then I was like, no, I'm going to be a Marine like my, my big brother. And um, the thought was in my head, right? So we went to Paris Island to my brother's graduation from Marine Corps boot camp, which is a stunning display of pageantry if you've never had the opportunity to go. And, you know, I was a, at that point a 16 year old kid. And we get there, and I go, I watch this whole thing, and I see Paris Island. And we took a tour of the island in our family station wagon. And, and um, I was in the back in that like like trundle seat in the back. And we drive by the rappel tower. And the rappel tower is this giant 40-foot tower on Paris Island. And it had USMC painted in red and gold down the side of it, right? And I looked at it and I said, someday I'm jumping off that tower. And my entire family burst out laughing and started teasing me. <laughs> my entire family. Okay. And I literally sat there and said, no, I'm going to do it. And they went, ha ha ha. Yeah. yeah, You're not going to do it. There's no way you're too fat. You're too this, you're too that. And I wasn't fat by the way, but I, at that, you submitted in my head when you told me you're not going to do that is basically what I tell my family. Now you, (laughs) you submitted it, that I was going to do it. I got home from Paris Island and my brother took me to his recruiter. And at 16 years old, my mother signed the paperwork for me to go in. I graduated high school early, um, halfway through my senior year. I went on a delayed entry program and I went to take to Paris Island. Yeah. And I jumped off that tower and I did an amazing job. And when I hit the ground um, the way you're supposed to, not like thumping or anything. And I did what I had to do. I ran up to the drill instructor and requested to do it again. And she she was like, "That's the most excited I've seen you about anything." Get to the end of the line; you can go again. Oh,
0: and that's that, oh, that's awesome! That's awesome because it's, it's, it's such a big deal. Like you're part of something so
1: big. It was. I mean, it's at, such a at such a young
0: age. What an impression it must have had on you.
1: It did. It did. And and um, it was. It, it really it changed my life because it taught me that I can do anything, even if people around me don't think that I can.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: That's not necessarily a lesson that somebody needs to learn at that age, but it it instilled in me that hard work can get you a long way.
0: Well, it instilled at you that, you know, college or anything else really wasn't off the table because as you said, <laughs> you're a very intel- intelligent woman,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: you know, your path was taken there for a reason yep. and you embraced it. So tell mm-hmm. me more about it because this is getting really interesting.
1: Um, so, so I graduated from Paris Island and I was, I was so incredibly proud. True story. I went home on leave and my brother took me around the bars. Okay. Um, my older brother did, he took, cause he was on leave at the same time. And he took me around the bars and was like, I didn't wear my uniform or anything. And he was betting people hey, tell me who's the other Marine in this bar. I bet you five bucks you can't find them, right? He cleaned <laughs> up because he'd be like, this is my sister. She's a Marine. Show me your ID, you know? Um, and then my younger brother took me around and did the same thing because he made bets on whether I'd make it through Paris Island or not. That's and he betted, he betted, he bet that in the affirmative. And um, he went around to all his friends and I would lean against his car while he would collect money.
0: <laughs> so you're a surefire bet as far as they were concerned. Yeah, as far, as far as they were
1: concerned, yeah. So I mean, it was, it was a good experience for me. That For the most part, um, the, the downside is I was raped when I was in the Marine Corps by, oh. a, slight, by a higher ranking enlisted um, when I was 18. And the culture of the military, and it has changed some, but the culture of the military at that point in time was, if it happened to you, it was your fault. And as a female, when that happened, if you said anything, you were the one who a large percentage of the time was going to get discharged, not the male. And the percentage of females in the military at that time was so incredibly low. Yeah, You know, that, I mean, the, the one place I was stationed, we had battalions of amphibious assault vehicles and the females, it was a, it was a school, it was a military, you know, it was a school for the Marine Corps. Um, the, we had one quarter of one barracks floor, okay? And they were four stories. We had one quarter of one barracks floor for females. Out of I don't know twenty plus barracks buildings.
0: Mm, to give they you did you say idea, power uh, numbers?
1: Mm. Yeah, to give you an idea. And I'm going to be honest: the majority of men I served with were just amazing young men and open doors and yeah. and all that stuff. You know, it's yeah, not, yeah. But but um, yeah, and and that changed my life a lot. It really did. Um, but looking back on it, you know. I know it wasn't my fault. I know it. But if I ever bring up, bring it up, I still have people ask me this many years later, what were you wearing? What were you doing? And all that stuff. And it, it really led to a lot of shame inside me. And a, a lot of the reasons I drank were, were because of that shame. I mean, my drinking got heavier after that incident, after that happened to me, my drinking escalated and um, you know, it ebbed and flowed over the years, but that was one of the big issues that really pushed me to drink because it was an escape. It was an absolute escape.
0: Yeah. And look, being in the minority as far as gender,
1: mm-hmm. were you then
0: fearful that this was going to happen to you again?
1: It was weird. It was almost like people knew without knowing because all of a sudden well, this I is had, my point. Yeah. yeah because I never said anything to anybody no. I I didn't say a word and it was really weird I'm getting kind of teary-eyed now there was a like a, a cadre of my friends who at that point decided to protect me and after that I never went anywhere alone until well you know, that's
0: good that's good I'm glad that they ran you know, you know they, that they were there for you
1: yeah they didn't know what happened but they noticed a change in me I think it's this bigger thing And and you know how sometimes you know things without knowing things too. But I had a a couple of the females, but mainly there were a few guys who just just stuck with me and and kind of protected me, which I really needed. I was I was barely eighteen when that happened.
0: I know, and the thing is too, you had your brothers there. Would you not tempted to just tell them, or you just thought, no, I've got to just because you've heard I've heard a lot about this thing happening, but I haven't. You know what this I mean? But today is, no. people are talking about it. Sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. So I was active duty. My brothers were in Ohio. My other okay. brother All right. was yeah. in California and um, I was, you know, way far away from them. Yeah. And no, yeah. I wasn't tempted because I was so ashamed literally after it happened, my brain shut down and I took that mm. memory and I stuffed it. Right. I just, I stuffed it so far down that I in effect kind of forgot about it because I had this great feeling of shame and this feeling that it was my fault. Right. And so I just stuffed it down and I really didn't deal with it until I was in my twenties and um, going to grad school and I was waking up screaming every night with nightmares. And that forced me to really start a journey in therapy to learn, to deal with trauma. And, and to learn to deal with things. It didn't cut down on my drinking because I never admitted to anybody I was drinking.
0: Mm. You know, they'd mm. ask and
1: I'd give the, oh, I'm just a social drinker thing, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and again, that's another thing that was being pushed down Mm-hmm. Um, and, and top of your childhood. So now things are starting to really pile up. There's only so yeah. much room in there for trauma. Do you know what I mean before? I
1: know exactly what you mean.
0: Yeah. You're going to and- have to let it all out. So, I mean, at this point you're coming into it. You're a young woman coming into adulthood. This is what you've experienced going into the Marines. Right. The fact that you could just even maintain and be there and not say anything um, is quite commendable but that must have been so hard so hard joe
1: well you learn you stuff it down okay so you stuff it down because as as a woman marine in the 1980s the late 80s you know i could not be seen as weak i could not i had men telling me all the time i didn't deserve to be in their marine corps you know it, it it that's just that was the culture of the organization so had i said anything i would have been weak and i could have potentially been discharged and i didn't want that and ended up being discharged for another reason later on anyways but it's like medical completely medical um it's a full honorable thank god but it's one of those things where you you do it to fit in with the society you're in you you learn how to cope based on the rules of that society okay and for me i had stuff so much from my childhood because i wasn't allowed to have emotions And so when this happened, I wasn't allowed to have emotions and I stuffed it back down again. And I didn't talk about it to anybody. I mean, nobody, nobody ever until I went to grad school in my late 20s and I fell apart. That was the first time I talked about it. And at that point, it was, geez, over 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you were in the, the marines for how long before you moved on into the hospitality business? It
1: was, it was about it was right around a year. Um, yeah, I, my my immune deficiency caused a lot of problems with illness, and I had three or four medical conditions all going at the same time. And you know they're not things they're going to figure out prior to me joining the Marine Corps. Um, and in fact. That my condition is so rare. There was no way they could have found it in the eighties anyways, but, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't function in the Marine Corps as just a normal person in any way, shape or form. It's amazing. I made it through basic training with, yeah, all, the, with all the medical issues I had it's just absolutely amazing. It was sheer stamina. I mean, it was just sheer stamina that got me through, but, um, I was in a year and then I came home and I went to a 13 week culinary program. And that got me started in the hospitality industry. That's, that's what really got me started. And then the easiest degree I could get a few years later was a culinary arts degree because I'd already been in restaurants and I already knew how everything worked. So I, I went and got a culinary degree, then a management degree, and later a, a degree in education.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so talk to me a little bit about those times in the hospitality industry oh my what happened there
1: yeah. <laughs> we would
0: apparently we, a lot of drinking as you
1: said no wonder oh yeah and and in a lot of places it still does the culture isn't as much now but um we would go to work and um there would be pitcher pitchers of beer and the guys would start drinking early i couldn't i couldn't hang i, I i'm not a But I couldn't hang with the amount of drinking they were doing at that point in time. So I would wait till the end of the evening, and then I'd drink beer with them, and then you know I'd I'd go home. Um, But the bigger thing was like when we weren't working, we'd all get together at people's houses, and like when I was going to culinary school too, and we just have big parties, and um, there there were always you know kegs of beer that was always big if we were doing a big weekend party or at least giant coolers with beer everywhere. And it was commonplace. I mean, you would drink on shift and it wasn't a big deal provided you could still do your job and the food went out to the tables on time. That was the bigger thing. As long as the service was happening, as long as the food was going out fine, you know, nobody really cared. Um, And things started to change in the nineties in the later nineties with that culture as well. You know, things started shifting um, but it was all about just working your restaurant shift and then, you know, going out with your friends to the bars in the area. And then all the bars did like these after hours drink deals for people in hospitality. They had hospitality specials, so to speak. So you could drink really cheap at like two o'clock in the morning. So yeah, there was a big there was a big <laughs> oh, you remember, I mean. Oh, you're just bringing
0: it back to me. Well, yeah, I mean, I was working full time, but I worked in a restaurant at night and um, I used to have to basically bail and get home because I had to be up at six again to do my office job when I was young. But it's amazing how much stamina we had when we were young, right? The thought of it now just exhausts me.
1: (laughs) It does. No, it does. There is no way. There is no way I could do that now. Absolutely, absolutely no way. Mm -mm. No. And what's crazy is when I was in grad school, I had a roommate who was a full blown alcoholic. I mean, full blown alcoholic. And I couldn't handle living with her. I had to go get my own place because it was that bad. Mm. And I saw it. I mean, I saw it firsthand and that still didn't stop me from slowly working on that thing. Yeah,
0: it's interesting, you know, because you saying that brings back to me people that I worked with because being in sales, you know, it's a very high sort of drinking <laughs> environment, you know, everyone does their sales calls, does, you know, what they have to do. They're all stressed out, especially in the advertising business when I was in Yellow Pages. We had a sales room or floor of about a 100 of us
1: and everybody right.
0: was doing the same job and different, you know, you, you did it by suburbs. So everyone would come back, do their, their ads and their paperwork and then the pub was just happened to be a couple of doors down and everyone, it was just, you didn't even have to say it. You could just walk in there yep. any night after work and there was a crew there. And then we'd be back to, you know, back to the job in the morning. But it's frightening because during that time we had managers and Uh because sometimes, you know, we would go on trips. There was end-of-year trips and there was managers and salespeople who just could not handle their liquor. There was one girl, she would drink and she was not of this world. I don't know what planet she was on. She could barely walk. She'd fall Uh all over the place. And I can remember going to her place. She was a young girl. And it was uh, the first time I've ever seen a bottle of frozen vodka or doesn't freeze really in the freezer. Oh, yeah, that, yeah. That was the only thing in her freezer at her place. And I thought, oh, this poor girl's got such a problem. And she was really bright. She was really mm-hmm. good at her job. And I wouldn't have had a clue had I have not witnessed
1: it. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, I, th- I think that's it. I mean, there are people who figure out, you know that we're drinking that heavy, or um, that it's escalating, and they can tell something's going on, right? But how many people watch us and just see it happen and and don't do anything because they don't they don't know us well enough, or they they don't know how to address it, or they're not comfortable with it. You know, how many people you know watch us go through this? Because I yeah, know. It took me a while to get up the courage to go to her and say, You are drinking way too much. You need counseling. You need help, you know?
0: It's true. And, you know, in a work environment, all these people, you wouldn't, during the day, you'd hear things. And even with mm-hmm. one of the managers, she was really, really bad. And there was probably about six or seven, you know, pre- managers for people on the road. And then we had telephone sales managers. But it was when we got into social situations or, as I said, trips away. My God, they—you think geez, these people, you know—but during the day they were totally professional, high-functioning, right. like I've said before, and that's why I want to touch on this: that people do not realise it's like our secret golden, golden secret that only we think we know. We present this facade at work um, of being totally functional. We rock up in our suits with our hair done, our makeup on. We go about our day, we get good results, and go home and hit the bottle or whatever, and no one knows because you turn up exactly the same way the same day, you know, the next day. It's amazing, oh, yeah. isn't it? And that's why I wanted to touch on this because it, it is. It's just another, another secret that alcohol makes you keep. It's Because we are ashamed. We don't feel great about it. We know at this point we have a problem. I know when I used to go drinking after work um, and you'd see the people, and it's interesting, a lot of the people who did have the problem would have a couple of drinks and bail, I guess, to go home. So they could really hit the bottle. And in yeah, the end, no, I was, I doing, that. Do that. I was no. doing that.
1: I was doing that. You did that too? Oh my God. I that was that like, too. I, that was my thing. So, like, we, um, we have these like workshops and conferences and things, um, with my current job. And I would go to those, right? Um, there were a couple that I went to that I, I didn't drink it all because they're just way too serious. You can't do it. You know what I mean? You yeah. This yeah. behavior. Uh, Yeah, those are the national, those are the, those are the giant ones, but like the ones just for our group, everybody goes out drinking at night and I would go and I'd have one or two drinks and then I'd go back to my room where I'd have a bottle of wine because, you know, you could go to the local grocery store and pick up wine and put it in your room and nobody knows any different and it doesn't cost that much. So I would sit in my room and drink by myself Mm. and then, you know, get up the next day and go down to meetings or, or whatever we had going on. And then when I got to the point where I was like giving presentations or stuff, I couldn't do that because it would impact my, you know, my work too much at that point. But, um, yeah, that was, that was the thing, you know, or when I, I worked, um, in South Florida, I would go out for like just one with a friend or, and then go home and drink with my hubby, with my ex.
0: And this is the thing, too, with your health, and we, um, you know, I've talked about this before, about how much alcohol depletes everything in your body, your vitamin B. I mean, it it really does take its toll on it. It takes so much out of us. And, I mean, I'm a high-energy girl, and I know that if I don't think if I was, I don't know how these other people get up in the morning and function. Maybe they don't. I mean, mm-hmm. I we would take these vitamin B tablets, you know, every day to, to replenish what we've lost. Yep. Um, you know, we just, we were giving it a nudge. And when I think back, I think, you know what? Maybe some days you weren't functioning. You probably were you smelling of alcohol, turning up to yep. clients, functioning in a, just in a, a fog. And it took you half a day to get over feeling crappy because my my hangovers were much worse when I was young than they were in the end. In the end, I didn't have them. Because I was just drinking in yeah, the morning to feel better. I mean, I was just drinking to feel better, period. It was mm-hmm. just like, okay, it was one continuous, big haze, fog, call it what you like, but it was chasing mm-hmm. the demon, 24. The clock just got smaller, and that's yeah. what I found over the over the years, and that's the progression of this freaking devil beast, whatever you want to call it. I call it the devil, is that, mm-hmm. you know, the after five became the, you know, fours. Then I'd be finishing, oh, I've got to get out of work early so I can, you know, get home or get to the pub or do whatever, at, you know, 3.30 because I was in sales. My time was my own. Oh, I've got a three o'clock phone call. I won't be back for the rest of the day. You know what I mean? Oh, sorry, a, a three o'clock yeah. face call. I won't be back. I was working my time around my drinking in the end. Wow. But I was always turning up early to make up for it, and that was the thing. You're yeah. making up for stuff. You, you know, as um, yeah. our friend Polly says, you may you been playing mental gymnastics, trying to make it work. So you've got the more, and my drinking time was just it just expanded into this <laughs> clock that there was not much time for anything else, and I had to be double as productive in half the time. It was crazy. What,
1: yeah, it. Um luckily I didn't hit the point where I was drinking in the mornings when I got up but I can tell you um if I wasn't working you know there there was always like uh prosecco or mimosas or something like on weekends early um and yeah I mean it got, it did get to the point where my life revolved around my drinking and I didn't do near the fun stuff that I do now. It was, about, my life was about my illness, my drinking and my job. That's it. I had, I had no other time for anything or anybody.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my drinking started, I've got to admit more so in co- the morning stuff. And it's not my husband's fault, but he said, Hey honey, I think that scotch might help you with the viruses. And COVID. So I'm like, hey, yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Thanks for that suggestion. So, you know, I would yeah. have coffee and a dash of that in the morning. But I never did that whilst I was working. After yeah. The earliest I would drink at work was a lot of, a lot of customers' lunches and clients' yeah. lunches. And I would do it on purpose and I had clients that would just want to go to lunch with me. But I basically had to write the afternoon off and blame right. them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because and a lot of the time it was their fault too. They'd keep me there. But, again, I could get away with it because it was a, a client that was bringing in a lot of money. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what spoke, the money spoke, right? So right. I was I was at that, but when COVID hit and I was home and I wasn't working, that's when things got really, really serious for me. Yeah. Like semi-retired, exactly. yeah, definitely. Um, okay. So getting back to those restaurant days. Now, you, I know that you've done a lot with yourself as far as your career goes. So to, yeah. let's move on and see what happened after that.
1: So after the restaurants, um, I still, I worked in management. I did uh, management in private clubs. And if you want to see a drinking environment, that is like a massive drinking environment. And it is for employees as well as for the members. And if you want to see advanced alcoholism, go work in a private club just go work. And you can see some highly advanced alcoholism in some highly functional people. It's amazing. We used to have these little old ladies that would come and they would just, you know, they do their volunteer work like in the morning and then they'd come and just pound like martinis that really weren't even martinis. It was like straight vodka, but it was an excuse, you know, a martini was an excuse to drink straight vodka. So I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of men uh, there were a lot more men that had heavy drinking issues that you could see. And, and all you had to do was just go on the, the golf, uh, go on the courses on the golf courses. And like the, the late, the women who ran the beverage carts, the young women who ran the beverage carts, they were making Bloody Marys and things like that. And, and selling people two and three mini bottles of vodka to go with that Bloody Mary at seven o'clock in the morning, you know, and, and some of their best sales were that early morning hour. So you're around it. So it just kind of gets ingrained in your head that that's, that's normal in some way, shape or form. So then I would go home with my, you know, and sit with my axe and we would drink and we would drink wine with dinner or wine while we were making dinner. And then bourbon turned into my thing somewhere along the line. So then it would be bourbon after that. And um, that's pretty much, you know, how it went. And then when the economy tanked in South Florida, but, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, um, I left private clubs and ended up working. Um, I got another job and I work, I don't really want to say exactly, but, um, I got a different job where I wasn't around alcohol at all, completely Mm -hmm. at all. And I could do my job, no problem, go out, do it, go home, no big deal. And then, um, But the drinking in the evenings, in the afternoons and evenings still continued. And the people I worked with were all pretty heavy, pretty heavy drinkers. And that was evidenced when we all had to travel for some work stuff. Everybody was just like, I pickled. I went home going, I don't know if I should be doing this job because everybody around me just drinks so heavy. And I was drinking as heavy as they were. I just didn't do it with them. You know what I mean? So the drinking at that point, it was, it was heavy and it was, it was pretty serious at that point. And I would try to stop because, you know, I would say I'm going to slow down and I'm only going to drink wine or I'm only going to drink this or I'm only going to drink that. And it wouldn't last long at all. And we, I'd be right back, you know, drinking again. Um, And then I got sick and the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I normally got pneumonia every year, no matter what. pneumonia and bronchitis were just constant. They were, I had more sinus infections than anybody should ever have in their life. Um, I would be out of work for a week at a time, you know, with pneumonia or bronchitis. It was just like second nature. In fact, it got to the point where my boss could like figure out when I had bronchitis just because I had it so often. I mean, that's how bad it was. And finally, finally a doctor that I had said, you you need some testing i'm sending you to an immunologist and um that's when they figured out what i have and it was really hard because it's a diagnosis where there's treatment but you're never going to be cured okay Mm -hmm. so my body is never going to fix itself this is not a mental thing this is not i mean for years i thought i was nuts because of it but my body will never be cured. I have to put six needles in my legs, or excuse me, four needles in my legs every two weeks for the rest of my life and infuse human IgG into my body because my body doesn't make it the way it's supposed to. And that was earth shattering for me um, because I was so sick so often that I couldn't do the things I wanted to do in my life. I I couldn't do things. I just, I couldn't, uh, we would go camping and I would stay in the camper with the AC on because I couldn't function outside. Um, we would we would go to like a marathon. My ex used to, is a runner. We would go to a marathon and I would go watch the race and be completely wiped out. I couldn't do anything else. And that was a terrible feeling. And what did I do to cope? I drank, which is, like the worst thing you can do with that. It's one of the worst things you can absolutely
0: do. Yeah. that's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because again, you've been given almost like a dual diagnosis for you today, because you're on the path of sobriety, as we know, that really is something we're going to have to work out for the rest of our days. And then you've got this other health diagnosis that you're going to have to work on for the rest of your days. So, but I really love the way that you, go camping I think that this <laughs> is brilliant and these days you do it without the glass in your hand yeah. yeah so I don't know yeah. if you want to tell me a little bit more about how yeah. that came about and maybe it was because we did that as children and that's yeah. you when know, I was um or when I say children I mean teenage years and my father was really really good he was the responsible one as I said that didn't drink and everybody had caravans and boats and we and and all these families oh, would go was... together and cool. my dad was the one that was taking the kids skiing and doing everything else. And everybody else's boat would sit in the water because they were all drunk and they couldn't, you know, they, right. they put the boats, boats in and never use them. I don't dad used to say, I don't even know why they bothered to bring in the boats because they never get used. Cause yes. they were responsible in the sense that the other guys, the other dads wouldn't take their boats out if they'd been drinking. But good. you know, yeah. they sat around and drank all day. That's what they did. We've got yeah. photos and films. But um, anyway, so, yeah, camping's a great thing if you can do it in a it bit is. of luxury these days. It is.
1: Um, so I've always liked camping and hiking and things like that. And, and I've always been involved in it. And my ex and I, he used to love going too. So we would, we had this big tent and we actually, when we went on our honeymoon, we went camping. (laughs) We had a blast. Um, But it's Mm -hmm. one of those things where I just enjoy it. I enjoy being outside and um, Debs knows this, but I bought a camper in COVID before I was sober. Okay. Before I was sober. Um, but I had been shopping for them forever before I bought it. It's just a little pull behind. It's a pop-up for like two people. Um, it's great. And I use it at least once a month. Cause I told myself if I'm going to spend the money to buy this new, because you can't get them used. Um, if I'm going to buy it new, then I'm going to use it and I'm going to use it frequently. So I try to use it once a month. And the other thing I've always liked doing is hiking. And I did some backcountry hiking about 10 years ago and I bought equipment and everything and I got to do it a couple times and then, you know, no more opportunities. And then I was drinking and I was sick and life and I didn't get to do it. So now I'm slowly um, starting that again. And in fact, I ordered a tent yesterday, a lightweight hiking tent specifically. So I can do that this fall. And I'm going next weekend to um, to go camping and try out my new tent without my little camper. So I'm going to go and spend Labor Day weekend in my new little hiking tent and, you know, play with my gear and see what I need for maybe a three or five day trip coming up sometime soon. So it's something that um, it gives me great joy. And it's a challenge for me. I do it alone because I am immunocompromised, and I did take a person camping with me once, and they were drinking, and that was a flaming crash burn and die. So, so <laughs> that is not mm-hmm. that is not something that's going to be occurring again um, in the near future. So, yeah.
0: So, do you, you go really- camping like? I hope you are not isolated because I worry about you being out in the woods just on your own. (laughs) No, like, okay. So,
1: so I go to state parks and um, when I check in at the state park, I literally tell them, Hey, I'm here by myself. If I'm there by myself, I tell them, Hey, I'm here by myself. Can you just like check on me every once in a while? And then if I plan on going on a really long hike, um, then I'll, I'll let the ranger station know. And I'll put a note in my car. I mean, there are safety things you can do to protect yourself. Um, And then like the back country, I will do by myself when I do it because I honestly don't want to go with anybody else. I know that sounds weird, but the trails that I'll use are ones that are known, that are safe, that, you know, um, they're in state parks. I'm not going like back country down the side of a mountain or anything like that by myself. It's just not going to happen. Um, and the, what, the, the two things I've done to help myself in this process is um, there's, there are courses called Becoming an Outdoors Woman. I haven't done it for years, but they're great courses. And through them, I learned first aid, wilderness survival, and um, self-defense. And I've, I've learned other self, you know, I've, I've taken other self-defense courses to help with my self-esteem in that through the years. So i try tried to develop a skill set that's going to keep me safe. If anything happens to me, I'm always the one who's like, I have the backup to the backup to the backup. So if I need something to start a fire, I'm going to have matches. I'm going to have a lighter and I'm going to have a fire stick just so I have, you know (laughs) what I mean? It's like, it's the same thing with everything I do. So I'm going to have layers of protection before I go out and do something on my own like that.
0: Yeah, good. Because I want to get you, um, you know, a security system and yeah. a security guard that will look over you. Uh, some I flares. Absolutely... Uh, I want, you know, I want yeah, no, outside I lights of your tent. I can't. I just think sitting in the bloody tent in the middle of nowhere, I'd be scared
1: shitless for the whole night. No, I think um, the weirdest, like the weirdest thing I had happen um, was when I was younger. It was actually in an active state park, and there were people around, and this guy was like he was just creeping me out. You know how you get vibes about somebody? Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. was completely creeping me out. And I remember, I remember I lasted one night before I left. He creeped me out that much. And I literally slept with my, um, oh shoot, my insect repellent spray, you know, that you put on. Yep, um, yep. I literally slept with that by my side. Cause I was like, if he's coming near me, I'm going to make him blind. And it was after that I started researching like the wilderness survival skills and how to take care of myself as a female if I'm going to do things like that alone and that was years yeah ago. absolutely
0: years ago. Yeah. <laughs> you've got to and I want to get you some pepper spray too because guess what we're not I state no, in real estate no I already have it good girl it. <laughs> yeah because we would open houses for four hours at a time in California and so yeah. I'm in this house whatever and but mine was a pen it was a pen and it was terrific because no one would know. I felt like a spy. I thought, ha ha, you don't know, but I know <laughs> you come near me and you're going to cop at sunshine. Yeah. Uh, so-, so it's like, I, I know that you're very prepared, Joe. And I, I really love that about you because you're a super intelligent woman and you know, you do enjoy it, but I think it's great that you've got the luxuries of your camper because when you go camping, you have to take so many things like
1: everything, you know? You do. Yeah, you do. And my little camper, it's teeny. It's so teeny. Um, for those of you who don't know, I have this little thing. It's called a Coachman Clipper. And it's got a full size bed in it, but it's got a sink with hot and cold running water. It's got an outdoor shower. It's got a little porta potty if you want to mess with the porta potty. Um, and it's just it's a great, it's got it's got heat and it's got AC, plus it's got a grill that hooks onto the outside. So it's got <laughs> all these amenities um that you get with a bigger camper, but with I can tow it with. My my Subaru. So I am thrilled to have it. And it works really well. I have found out it works in snow and it works in exceedingly hot weather both. So um, because I've tried it.
0: Yeah. It's amazing the way <laughs> so they I'm design trying. them now, isn't it? Yeah. They just yeah. can put so much into them. Yeah. Like, um, I've got friends, I'm just getting off topic here for a minute, but I've got friends okay. who've got a fifth wheeler. It's 44, they're in Vegas. And that it's got like I'm not kidding you two fireplaces, two bathrooms. Oh my god! A full yeah, a king size bed, a full kitchen when you come in. It is brilliant. I they, they said they had this big house and they said, hell no, we we just love it. We just love it. And they've got a great big truck that one day they're gonna tour in it, and they were uh-huh. thinking about buying a house, but they've decided to stay in this fifth wheeler, yeah. and it's awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I mean and I I know the fun that we had because as I got a bit older you know dad dad who was very very strict with me eventually let me take some friends to our you know stay in the caravan Mm -hmm. we had the annex you know so the boys could stay out there and the girls could stay in the caravan or however it ended up being and um you know it was so much fun it they're just so fun because you're forced together you're communicating a lot and it's you just do things and You know, I mean, you like doing it on your own. Everyone's different. I always like to sort of be around people, but it makes me feel a bit safer, I think. Um, But it's a great thing that you do on your own, considering the health um, issues that you do have. You know, the fact is you've found some joy in your camper, just like our friend Dottie Pot has found in her Uh Can-Am. You know what I mean? And she's got health issues too. It just goes to show you life actually really does get better when you are sober it does. and you're not debi- as you know you're only as debilitated as you I guess want yourself to be you can't find something enjoyable to do and it doesn't have to be these things that we've suggested no, it doesn't. but there are enjoyable things that you know you can go back to living like you're a kid again and enjoy some things you know that you, you haven't uh-huh. done for a while
1: yeah, I think with me, I tend to push myself way too hard. I have very high expectations oh,
0: for Oh, you too, huh? Yeah oh, okay. yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hear you. I whole. hear you.
1: Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people who have chronic illnesses, um, it, it's a fine line we walk. It's a very fine line because a lot of times society tells us that if we think it, we can do it. That's bullshit when you have a chronic illness, because we can think it, we can try to do it and we can make ourselves a lot sicker, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and then you have to find where that balance is for yourself, because I follow a woman um, on IAS, Souks, and she goes kayaking and she, she does all these things. And she also has chronic illness and it's amazing what we can find for ourselves that, that fulfills us, that's within our range. And it's figuring out what's within your range, because I can tell you, there are times I have taken my little camper out and I've lasted one night before I've had to turn around and come home because I've gotten Mm. sick, you know, Mm. it's Mm. recognizing that I am sick and that I do need to pack up and I do need to come home before it gets worse. Um, and, and that's the big thing is you have to pay attention to your body because I knew both those times I knew before I left, it probably wasn't a good idea. But I went anyway Yeah, because, hey, <laughs> you know,
0: yeah, you're a strong minded woman and you thought, yeah. well, I'll just give it a shot and see, but by the same right. token, you were in tune with your body. You realized that once the symptoms were getting worse, turned around, went yeah, back home, around and, home, but it yes, doesn't go. Right. It just goes to show you trust your gut first girl about everything. You to. Trust your gut. You have you to, know? Like, so then we move on to, is this the same job that you are in now that you were talking about um, just before? It,
1: it's well, I'm working for the same people. I've just, right. it, I have worked my way up. I have worked my way up. I started out in the field and now I'm, you know, running part of a program. I think that's one way to say it. Yeah. So now yeah. I have, now I have uh, 23 people that work for me. Right. And before I was, you know, out in the field. So uh, yeah. It's been a it's been a progression over the last 13 years.
0: Yeah. Well, I know from talking to you, you're very, very good at what you do. And this is where I it comes back to you've got your health issues. Now this is a totally separate thing because now you've got mental stress issues as well, being responsible yeah. for 23 individuals, plus probably more, give or take yeah. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Um and that's a lot to manage. It really, really is. You and I have talked about this off, uh, off, Sober- off the Sobertown train. But because you're dealing with all these personalities on any given day and with COVID and all the challenges that have happened, mm-hmm. um, particularly just, you know, people's mindsets have been affected. I mean, everybody wants oh, wow, to yes. keep work in and, and keep the bills coming in. But mm-hmm. like you, I always felt responsible for my staff and yes. wanted them to obviously make as much money as they could because they were doing sales, my staff were. So mm-hmm. the potential was, you know, as much as as many sales as they could get was the more you were going to get rewarded. Unfortunately, <laughs> with that, though, comes um, a bit of dishonesty <laughs> along the way. You oh, know, they yeah. weren't always ethical in their process. And, again, you have to be very sharp to watch these foxes because they're pretty cunning, some of these staff members. I love mm-hmm. them. but I And they knew it you know they would i actually used to put money out there as incentives to keep them honest so they because if it was coming out of their pay packet then they would that would drive them to be dishonest and i'm talking about not in america or australia this was actually in hong kong and hong kong rules themselves on money they just money 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 that's all they care about because it's a very expensive wow. country to live in and they live in like one of my staff members in a one bedroom flat in fact it wasn't just one a lot of them they had 16 um, 16 family members who were sleeping on the kitchen floor, the bathroom floors. So we uh, don't really know how lucky we have it. We really don't know. I've seen a lot, a lot of, um, a lot of poverty and a lot of people who live in circumstances that we look mm-hmm. like we live like Kings and Queens. So that's something to be grateful for today, just to have your own bedroom. you
1: know what I mean? No, it is. I understand.
0: Yeah. So how do you find you balance your health with your, your mindset what do you do to keep all that in check because the stress as we all know is going to really affect your body and again deplete
1: you of the energy that you well, so need to conserve so so there's a couple parts to this i want to talk about my my employees real quick i have the best staff anybody can have okay
0: yeah that's terrific
1: they know they know about my illness they understand my illness because i've been very open and upfront about it Mm-hmm. And they are very responsive when I'm not well. And they are more than willing to step up for me when I'm sick because I step up for them when they need it. It's a mm-hmm. gift and, and I am very proud of them, but they will also tell you, I will push them when necessary. It's, um, I can't be successful if they're not successful relationship is how I, how I look at it. So when I Just get, sure
0: sick,
1: when I get sick, I have support from my work team. Okay. And they're amazing about it because they understand what it means. If I get a cold, that can be a week on the couch for me. Okay. Yeah. yeah exactly. Whereas when somebody else gets a cold, they sniffle their way through the office and I, I lock myself in my office and don't let them in. Um, the, so working from home for me is very isolating because I'm not in an office and I live alone. That's the harder part for me. So for me, part of the balance is in understanding that I have to reach out for people for that connection. And that's, mm-hmm. I, I, am, I am really bad about it because I have really bad ADHD. And one of the parts of that is something called object permanence. Well, there's also relationship permanence. So I forget people exist when they're not in front of me. Okay. And it's, it's, it's common for people with ADHD and it makes it very hard for you to maintain re- relationships with people who are distant. And um, it, it's an act of, of effort for me. It's, it's a s- serious effort for me to stay in touch with my friends. So IAS has been critical to my success. It has been absolutely critical. I found it the very first day when I dumped the alcohol, I found IAS and I started reading and I posted and posted why I needed to be there and IAS came through for me, like gangbusters. And then when I was like somewhere around that two month mark, a little before that two month mark, Corinna reached out to me, Dottie Pot. She reached out to me and then Polly took me under her wing in the, in the hen house. And those two women by doing that for me, um, helped save me basically so part of my balance I check in every morning on IAS and in our hen house I check in every day um because I stopped drinking one of my friends is no longer drinking and she's on IAS now and um you know the it's affecting my the sobriety is one of the things that helps me keep balance so because I'm not drinking, I can face things I couldn't face before. So I go to therapy every two weeks. That helps me maintain my balance, talking to my friends and trying to maintain relationships that helps me. Like my best friend is in New Jersey and we actually set times to talk now to make sure we talk. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh,
1: Once I understood what the issue was, then I told her and she's like, Oh, we'll just, we'll plan on it then. And that helps. So with me, what helps me stay balanced are simply having the relationships and maintaining the relationships because when I'm sick, I need support and that's when I needed the most, but that's when I was always afraid to ask for it. I wouldn't yeah. ask for help. And the ladies have been unbelievable when I get sick. I mean, they are just right there.
0: No, you're right. They are absolutely fantastic. This is community. Yeah. Is just um, oh. I haven't heard anybody say anything, but, you know, it has yeah. really helped them because as the wise old gentleman who I love, and I could call him old because I love him dearly, um, Chef 56 says, you know, connection is the opposite of addiction. And mm-hmm. that's why I make an effort to get to every Zoom. I'm not always on IS posting, but I try and encourage others. But I tell you something, by going to Zooms, and I miss that connection face-to-face too because, as people know, I am not in the country that I grew up in. I'm not in the country that I was born in. And we have only in the last couple of years moved to where I am today in Florida. So Florida being a very, you know, um, sorry, holiday town. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, just like when we were in San Diego and I lived there for 15 years. That was different. I did know people there because I was working. And I've always made really close friends at the places that I have worked at. And I've kept in touch with one or two from each place today. But in Miami, I'm not working. It's a different kettle of fish. And yes. even people that I've made friends with in the building I live in, they move. They like everybody, it's very transit, it's very fast moving, and hence you don't make the connections that you would make within a working environment. IAS has come in, and if someone had told me this is how your sober life is going to be, and making the friendships that I have made, yeah, and I am very much a one-on-one girl, and I have a couple of people in IAS, who are truly going to be lifelong friends, and I can honestly say saved my life. Really, they did. I never dreamed that I could have these connections so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I talk to them just like you every day. I make the time for them. It's very important to me, as is my sobriety, and I'm sure it is to you too. And it does give you that balance. It gives you that connection. And under the circumstances of COVID and lockdown, It really does keep you on top of things. And that combined with, as I said before, the Sober Town podcast, you know, I do that all the time. I read all the time. I've done a lot of work just to keep myself. You've got to work this stuff. I've learned that I can't just sit back and think, okay, it'll come to me. It's not going to come to you. And it was a big effort to get on those Zooms. I don't know about you, but I was sort of like, oh, who are these people? Like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And right. I realise if you just get on, suck it up, get on, do yourselves a favor, listeners. They are really relaxed. They are really good. They're really normal. And people are just really fun. And you get to make new friends. It's like being that new kid at school. The first day will be probably nerve wracking, horrendous. But after a couple of days, you'll find someone who'll talk to you and off you go and you'll never look back.
1: I think I agree um, with me and Polly knows this and, and all the women in the house know this. I am on virtual meetings some days, six to seven hours a day. <laughs> yes. When I'm done, the last thing I want to do is get on a Zoom. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. I tend not to do a lot of the Zooms unless it's like a Friday night or um, the Sundays with the ladies are always good. You know, those are things that I can do um, because honestly, when I'm done at the end of the day, I am fried, I am exhausted and I just want to sleep. So um, I like the Zooms we do and the ones that I, I have been on have been really good. And sometimes we're there for hours just you know chatting, which is really, really nice. So when I have energy and I haven't been totally beat up by my day, you'll find me on them. But for the most part, I'll only hit like two Zooms a week. But behind the scenes on that, I'm reaching out to people on IAS going, Hey, how you doing? What's going on? And um, I'm on there a lot because I'm not, you know, on the Zooms. And then the hen house, and of course. I've always got some kind of self-help book going. I don't know if it was you I was telling, but I didn't do a lot of the quitlet, but I do a lot of self-help books and go to therapy. So, you know, you have to to stay sober. Everybody has a different experience on how they do it, on what they need, but you have to maintain connection in some way with people around you in the same boat and you have to work on yourself. You have got to work on yourself. You can't just assume that you're fine, like you said, like you're fine and you can just stop drinking. It doesn't work that way. Because if you don't deal with the issues that cause it, you're just going to fall back into the old patterns.
0: It's so true. And when I was working too, I was like, you know, I'd get home at the end of the day and all I wanted was the bottle and no people. I didn't even want to talk to anybody.
1: <laughs> yeah. And
0: I, um, yeah. I had lived with, um, because I, actually didn't get married until I was 40. For 20 years I had roommates and I had roommates who were either older than me. I lived with one of my managers. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was surrounded by people who were either the same age or older than me, had similar, similar lifestyles. And guess what we did? Dinner parties, drinking people over every night. So my whole, my whole thing was, Oh, I've left work at work, but guess what? Even the work people within social people or, You know, I mean, it was just one thing ran into another, but I didn't, as I got older and I was managing more people, because I was just an account rep at that point. I was an advertising rep. That was fine. The responsibility of other people was not my own. It was, you know, my managers, that's fine. But when I became a manager, then I had to separate and I never socialised with people that I worked with very rarely. Um, And I can remember my manager even swearing me to secrecy and saying, look, I don't socialize with my staff. You have to keep this between you and I. And to this day, we're really still exactly. good friends. So she made a good decision. I'm glad that she um, that she did decide to take that pun on me. But, you know, it is true. You have to have that. And, again, it gets back down to decompressing and have that time for mm-hmm. yourself, especially yeah. when you have a compromise, compromised immune yeah. system.
1: And okay? the, beautiful part, the beautiful part about having a compromised immune system, and this is completely true, um, is I can now look at somebody and say, yeah, no, I can't do that. I have to go rest. Right. And it's yeah, true.
0: Yeah. It's
1: true, And it's not, I'm not lying to them. I'm not anything, but you know, people, once they understand the severity of what it is, they're like, oh, okay, okay. Okay. And they leave you alone about it. So like, if I say, I'm sorry, I can't drink because of my medications, they automatically go to, Oh, Oh, it's her, it's her illness. Right. And they leave me alone. So, you know, a lot of the pressure that some people get for not drinking, I don't have that
0: because yeah, yeah. They,
1: they automatically revert back to my illness, whether it's that or not, you know what I mean? So it's yeah. kind of a little grace that I get because of that illness.
0: Yeah. And I can hear your body saying right now, thank you, Joe, for giving that demon and devil away. I mean, the fact that you've done that. And when I see you on Mm zoom, you always look really healthy. You know, it's like, like, and again, this is not, yeah, yeah, this is not a, this is not something that these health issues that you have and not something that you can always
1: visually see. You can't see it. That's, and that was one of the issues. Like when I was really sick, people would tell me, I mean, I would be sick as hell And people would tell me, well, you don't look sick. I mean, I had a doctor, I had full-blown pneumonia, right? And I was really pale. And he literally said, you don't look that bad, but we're gonna get you some chest x-rays just to be sure. And then they're like, oh yeah, by the way, you have pneumonia, (laughs) you know? And it was shortly after that, they figured out, Well, it was actually a bit after that. They figured out what was wrong with me. But I I remember I got to go back to my GP, my old GP, and go, "Uh, Yeah, I remember you said nothing was wrong with me. Here's a list of everything wrong with me. And by the way, I'm severely immunocompromised. So all those times you told me nothing was wrong and go home, I was sick, you know? So I look completely fine the majority of the time. But no,
0: it's one of those. Yeah, but you're not the one sticking four needles into yourself
1: every two weeks. weeks and sitting, yes. y'all have seen me sit in my chair with my little pump Yes, for four I hours. have. I'm like, I'm like, here's oh. my pump," you know. Oh, I,
0: my God. I'm just like, I just, oh, you tell you what, Joe. I'm glad it's you and not me. I'm, I'm not glad It's one of those sick.
1: things where.
0: But it, you, you, it, that's your life. That's, that is your life. life. And you've adapted. And
1: yeah. yeah. I don't have a choice. And it's one of those no. things. Where if I choose not to do that, I don't want to cycle back to where I was because that was a miserable place to be. It yeah. really was being that sick all the time. And yeah, I still get sick a lot. Yeah, I do. But doing, making sure I take care of myself and doing what I need to do and not drinking gives me the ability to go hiking and to go camping.
0: Right. And, right. To That's it. Yeah. and have this
1: it's... conversation with you because I guarantee you had this been like, you know, cause what I'm going on five months now, shortly, I've got a few more days before I hit five months, you know, six months ago, I would have been tanked by now and wouldn't even been able to have a rational conversation.
0: Yeah. Well, congratulations for those five months because you know what in the, in the real world, it's a long time. It really is. When you think about your time spent to drinking, I mean, we tend to not give ourselves a pat on the back for the time, even if it's two days, three days, it depends where you were when you started out on this journey to how far you've really come. So to me, like the first, week was really scary. like, (laughs) how am I going to get to a week? And this brings me to my point to you. When did you actually decide no more? I just have to stop
1: when that Monday morning. Okay. So they, the doctor put me on Adderall the previous week, right. And, or two weeks prior, two weeks prior. And I didn't realize that drinking on Adderall was like bad, 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 bad. Right. And um, because I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until 52. So wow. um, yeah, oh yeah, you live your life like that. Um, so I took the Adderall on whatever night, you know, whatever day. And then I drank on Thursday and was so sick Friday, I couldn't work. And then I I literally drank uh, Friday evening Saturday, all day, Sunday, most of the day, because one of my girlfriends came over and we had Prosecco Sunday, where I make brunch and she brings three bottles of Prosecco for the two of us. Mm -hmm. And um, we had Prosecco Sunday, then she left and I continued drinking after she left. Okay. And Monday morning, I woke up and mind you, I tried to quit before. I really did. I tried to, I tried everything. And Monday morning, I woke up and I felt like death warmed over. I could barely see everything was blurry. Mm. And I knew I couldn't call off work again. And, um, I was like, what the hell am I going to do? And I remember laying in my bed going, you're still drunk. And, and I was like, what, what are you doing? You are too old for this. This isn't, this isn't healthy. You can't, you're going to kill yourself is what's going to happen. And I was so incredibly sick. I was nauseous and it was just the worst feeling. And I knew I'd given myself alcohol poisoning and I got up and I could barely walk down the hallway and I went into my kitchen and I remember opening the liquor cabinet and looking at the bourbon bottle and at how much I had drank the night before. And it was a handle. And I literally drank half a handle by myself. And I went, fuck, I, I can't do this. And I took it and I dumped it in the sink. And I remember pouring it thinking, that's a lot of money I'm pouring away. <laughs> that was my, like, that was my, <laughs> that was your
0: first yeah, and then yeah.
1: It, it, it's like seven o'clock in the morning. And, and I'm drunk from the night before I'm barely functioning. I'm throwing up. I mean, just and knowing I have to make it through my work day. And, um, luckily work, it was work from home. So I didn't have to like get in a vehicle or anything. And I sat down, I have, you know, my chair. So I sat in my chair and I Googled apps to stop drinking. Yeah.
0: yeah, This is
1: like, oh, okay. This is where Google comes in really handy. I Googled apps to stop drinking. That was my first Google on that Monday morning. And I asked came up as like the second or third choice. And for some reason I was like, that looks good. I am sober. And I clicked on it and I signed up right then and there. And it was like, Oh my God. And once I started reading what other people, and I kind of figured out what the system was, I still have on there what I wrote that first day about how alcohol is poison and it's slowly killing me. And I'm too young. So I dumped, I mean, I literally stood and dumped all of the alcohol I would drink. I still have alcohol in my house, but it's not stuff I'll drink. And it's still here. And, um, I definitely, I've given some of it away. I'm just going to have to just give the rest away now because I'm not going to drink it. But yeah, so that was it for me. I, I just decided I can't live like this. I, I can't, I was waking up at two o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning, every single morning, sweating and anxious and nauseous because my body was going through that alcohol carb crash it goes through. And the anxiety was just gut-riching. It was just absolutely gut wrenching. And, you know, with PTSD and everything else I have going on, I don't need that shit. I mean, I just, I don't need it. So I'm to the point now, it's taken five months, but I'm to the point where I can sleep through the night most nights. I still, every once in a while, I'll still wake up, but almost most of the time, I can sleep through the night now. And so for the people who are listening, who are like on IAS going, hey, when do you start sleeping through the night? varies from person to person but at five months i'm pretty much sleeping
0: through the night yeah we just did that podcast on um 20 things that happen in the first 30 days myself dotty pot and And, um you know it's interesting i was just going to bring up that about your symptoms before you decided to stop because one thing listening to you tells me that you're a very decisive person you just went that's it bang i'm done and you still have alcohol in the house, it's not like you sound like you can be around it. It's not a trigger. And I was going to talk to you about the anxiety and depression uh, mm-hmm. at one level because what I'm learning in this, in this whole sobriety track is the devil gets you progressively and everything that happens is exactly the same to every single person. The mm-hmm. only thing that changes, the symptoms don't change. The only thing that changes is the time factor of when you yeah. begin with alcohol and when it gets you. That's the only thing is the progression. The symptoms are the same. You know, the extreme anxiety, the depression, the sweats, the waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning, the fact that I couldn't live in my skin. I didn't want to be on this earth. I wanted to just tear my hair out. You know, I wanted to just die because I thought that was the way I was going to be dead anyway. It drives you to the point of really, really, really a dark place. And everybody ends up in that
1: place if you drink long enough. That is what I have learned. Yeah, you do. And I agree with you. And just know, it wasn't like that day it was that decision. It was a whole bunch of that decision again and again and again, right? Um, Before I got on IAS, I tried so many. Right, okay. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about your tries. it It wasn't like I automatically said, this is it, I'm done the difference, the, I when I lived in South Florida four years ago, like when I was married, I knew then that my drinking was too much. And that's when I had purchased the book, Almost An Alcoholic, right? And mm-hmm. did I read the whole thing? No, of course not, because I was too drunk to for the majority of the time. Um, but I tried then, you know, years ago to, to try to stop drinking and I couldn't. And I just couldn't. There was always a reason, you know, always a reason to drink. I was either celebrating something or I was depressed and I needed something to pick me up, you know. Um, but I tried again and again and again. And when um I moved here to the house I'm in right now, I tried countless times. I tried moderating, like we had that <laughs> moderation conversation. Oh, that God, was, yeah, yeah. That was a, that was just mental gymnastics, like Polly says. That was straight up mm-hmm. mental and it never worked and after um my friend came to me with his concerns more or less um I tried I tried so fucking hard I I oh my god I didn't bring any alcohol in the house I you know but I always ended up going out to get it again I'd last a few days the longest I made it was 30 days I made it 30 days. I dropped weight. I was exercising all the time. I made it 30 days because I told myself I can do 30 days. Right. So I did 30 days. Day 31, I was shit faced by six o'clock. And I'm (laughs) done at five. No, it was like, but that's that's exactly what it was. That's what it does
0: to you. That's what it does to you. It doesn't, you know, you get it for a bit and then you, Step back as soon as you hear that voice and let him in and he gets you twice as hard the next time. It's like it's the little shit. He comes at you harder and faster. And I know (laughs) because I've been to these DUI classes and bloody all this other shit. And They warned us. If you stop for a period of time and you go back because we know that alcohol does get out of our system fairly quickly. Physically, it does. The emotional shit comes later on. But if right. that bastard comes back and it comes back harder, as soon as you t- you pick up that one drink, it is not going to even end well. It's just not. no,
1: no. So I'm terrified. So I think one of the things that's keeping me sober is the fact I'm terrified because I know, I know for a fact, if I pick up one drink, I mean, on IAS a couple of times, I've jokingly said, if it's one, it's six or if it's one, it's eight. Right. I know. I know what that spiral will be.
0: So yeah, but that's that's brutal honesty, Joe and that's really, really good that you know that 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 is it. something that you have accepted and a lot of this mm-hmm. that we're on is about acceptance, accepting ourselves, accepting that we do have an issue with alcohol, accepting that we cannot moderate. Um, God bless those. If somebody can, can give me the secret to moderating, tell me because I've not found, one person and in the process and you do have to learn for yourself everybody is different we custom design our sobriety and our path in our own way to fit in with our lifestyles but at the end of the day this particular issue does not change for anybody and you know it will it's it's something like you said you have um health issues that you have to live with now I have a health issue I have to live with because it will kill me if I go
1: back Exactly, and it will, and I think you know, once you hit that point where you understand, because like the first month for me, you asked me how you know what was your first month like, it was a freaking blur. I'm gonna be honest, it was a blur. I, after you asked me that, I went back through my IAS post and I didn't post anything really of any substance on my timeline until I hit like the two month mark because it was Mm. all. You know, it was, I'm not feeling good or, or I've had a rough day or whatever, but I didn't have anything with like any real insight until I hit like that two month mark. And that's when things started really clicking for me. But that's also when I told my therapist and it's also when I got hooked up with Corinna and Polly and you guys. And it's also when I started becoming really honest about my drinking, because until then it was still like this hidden you know my friends didn't know and and now my close friends know i've told them you know i'm not drinking here's why i'm not drinking and and like part of them were like i had no idea yeah. and you know but it wasn't until i started getting honest that things switched you know what i mean it's like it was like that's when the switch turned turned it on and and things Really started changing
0: for me. Yeah, and I remember years ago, my mum she drank, and then she stopped in her forties. As I said, my stepfather never drank, and my sisters a normie, and so it's my brother. But you know, the thing is, mum said to me once, "You know, darling, we are worried about you because here's the thing with you: you start and you cannot stop. You don't mm-hmm. have an off switch. You're, you're all you're like a yeah. poor, yep, you're a in a china shop." You've never done anything by halves. It is your personality and you treat alcohol exactly the same way. Yeah. But I always, okay. I would start and I'd drink. Well, I think mainly I would drink a lot quick. And so I would always yes. stop at a certain point at night because I thought I've got to have work. So I had a cutoff point that I would stop drinking and I always got a lot of sleep. And to this day, I think it's the only thing that saved me, even if I got that sleep till 3am, but I did get a lot of sleep. Having said that now, I felt really terrific in the, like the first couple of weeks I was, it was brutal, but then I came really good. All of a sudden I woke up one day and I was like, oh, wow, this feels really, really good, you know, but I don't have the health issues you have. So that may have um, sort of detained yours a little bit longer. You know what I mean? Because you were dealing with other things inside and also the mental clarity my, see this is the opposite my mental clarity is going to take a long long time to come back it's pretty good now but I really know that I unplugged all those wires a long time ago and it's going to okay. take a, a long time to plug them all back in and my memory's starting to come back and I'm remembering things and uh-huh. you know you can't spend the amount of years that I've spent drinking and not expect to be you know, this to take a long time. I can't just wake up and everything's going to be great. And that's why I work at it. That's why I work at my brain trying to, you know, I've retrained it. I've retrained it. Do you suffer much with the addict voice anymore at five months?
1: Oh, yeah. I still hear it. I still hear it. Like, um, Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, You, you weren't in our, um, we had our call, I don't know, last week or the week before we were on a call and somebody asked that question. And I said, yeah, I still hear it. I do. Yeah. Because- I get done with my work day. Right. And I I'm alone. Remember I'm alone. Oh yeah. Um, Okay. I get done with my work day and the the habit was turn off my computer, grab a bourbon, you know, or start dinner and pour a glass of wine while I'm making dinner. And that was, it was, it was routine. So for me, I'm still living in the same house. I'm still in the same job. I'm still, you know, the patterns are still there. So the attic voice is still there, but now it's much, much easier for me to go. Yeah, no, it ain't happening. Because number one, it ain't in the house. Mm-hmm. So if, it, if, if what I'm willing to drink is not in the house, it ain't worth it for me. It's just not. So,
0: yeah. yeah. And, you know, thinking about that, when I said, oh, you do, it's interesting because I'm thinking about if I was at work and under the amount of stress that you are under, I probably would have yeah. it more in mind. What I'm saying is I do have it if I'm under stress. My day-to-day, I'm the same as you. I live in the same place, but I'm not working. So my time's my own and I can manage my stress better. Mm-hmm. But I know for myself, low, um, isolation, if I'm on my own and not yep. working and I, and I think too much and I overthink things and, I've got, and I'm super stressed, that'll yep. trigger me for sure. Um, right. So, yeah, I just don't get it as much just simply because I don't have that stress in my life as much as I used to. So it's a very interesting point there too, Joe. yeah. yeah.
1: Cause that's my biggest. And like, honestly, when I'm exposed to certain things about my family, that, that will stress me too. And that, and I'll but like the, the remainder of the time I have hobbies and I have things, you know, that help keep me busy. Yeah. If it gets too bad, I get on IAS and I start saying nice things to other people about their journey. <laughs> and that always, that always makes me feel better. You know what I mean? Because I know I'm not alone and, and other people are in the same boat.
0: And it's terrific to know that it's like our, our little friend's little friend Rag says, you know, it it's always in your back pocket. You can always oh. pick up your phone, you can get on IAS, you can reach out to somebody. And this is what mm-hmm. we're saying to your listeners, if you feel that, if you feel that voice or if you feel uncomfortable, you're feeling itchy, reach out to somebody, talk to somebody, yeah. get on IAS. Because I tell you what, I can waste. Oh my God, no wonder why I, I never sleep. If I pick up exactly. that phone in the middle of the night and I think I'll just check on one thing. Yeah, not Two hours have gone and I know I'm, I'm lying <laughs> in bed and then it's like 5 a.m. and I'm getting up. I, exactly. It's happened to me so and I think, oh, I haven't replied to that person. I haven't done yeah. this. But, I, you know, again, you've got to get your boundaries, make sure you're in balance. They always said eight hours play, eight hours sleep, eight hours mm-hmm. work. It doesn't work that way. If you can get no. that into your life, you'll be a lot better. You will be a lot balanced. Your mental health will be better. You'll physically be stronger. But, you know, it's a hard thing to do because I think – in today's world with so much technology and we're just so bombarded um, with anything. You open up your phone and how many messages and things do you have? And, like, I've tried to cut all the ads out of my life. I've tried to cut out everything that I can but still keep myself connected to those I want to be connected to. And if you've got children and a family and all that on top of that, oh, God bless you, I don't know how some of these women do it. And, you know, women don't get enough credit because they're doing – Half the time, the, the job of a man in, in their professional life and keeping a household. I mean, oh, God bless them. You know, yes. it's not to say that men don't contribute because I know friends that have the men stays at home, and my girlfriends are more successful, earn more money, and they stayed at home and look, uh, looked after the kids when they were young, and mm-hmm. the mum went out. So whatever works for you in your household is terrific. But I think there's just a lot more pressure in life generally these days, and I think it's about just living within your own pressures, like. You it don't is. have to be the best. You don't have to have the best, all the materialistic no. things, all this other stuff. You know, if you've, you've got your health, you've got your family, you've got, you know, your friends, you've got your dog, you've got your cat, whatever you've got. And whatever you've got right now, just make the most of it, you know? Exactly. And That's yeah. it. I agree. Because life goes by so, so quickly. So I don't know if you want to give any of the listeners that, um, any advice about there or helpful hints about what you do to keep the voice away or just how you maintain just and we really are there, you're in maintenance mode, staying yeah. on this sober, on this sober
1: path. I would say, I would say Polly always says connection is the opposite of addiction. Yeah, yeah. And that that is definitely true. The other thing that really helps me maintain my sobriety. There's two actually, one is making sure my mental health is taken care of through therapy. Um, and if, if it's financially feasible for you, because I recognize so many people, it's not financially feasible for, I understand that. So if it's financially feasible for you and you're on this journey, I would say find a therapist and somebody that you can talk to who's outside of all of this, that you can, that you can take your troubles to, that can help you work through these things from your life. But that also means you have to be completely honest with them for them to help you. So I would say therapy. And then um, the, the other one that really helps me is by helping others. And I have made some really great connections on IAS and in our little women's group because I've been willing to help others. And what the love you put out is the love you're going to get back. And I can tell you from experience the love I have put out on IAS and in our little women's group has come back multiplied 10 times. And when, when I am in need, there are people there who, who are willing to support me, whether it's in my illness or in my alcoholism, there are people there who are willing to be there for you and sit with you while you go through it sit with you kind of a, you know, um, but they're willing to be there with you while you're doing this. So reach out and give to others and they'll give it, they'll give it right back. And yeah, Yeah. that's really it. I would say mental health, take care of yourself. You have to take care of yourself. This doesn't just happen. You have got to work it.
0: And is there anything in particular, because I've got my own, my own little thing that I do that you Mm -hmm. say to the addict voice, if you feel it approaching. (laughs)
1: Oh my God. No, because with me, my brain's all over the place all the time. So, um, with me is once I recognize it, I just have to kind of stop in my tracks and go, okay, you're not doing this. I mean, literally I just have to stop. I just have to stop whatever I'm doing and just be like, no, mm -mm, not happening. Mm, No. And yeah, that's really how I personally deal with it. And then I find something to keep myself busy. Like I find busy work. I have a garden. I have sewing. I mean, I will find a busy project to distract myself if I have to.
0: I feel that um, that's, that's such a good point too, because the words no and stop are really quite powerful, especially the word stop. Yeah. And I know when I was at one point suffering from panic attacks and this was going back years ago and my sister, because my mum, my sister, my grandma, we're all, we're all pretty much wide, um, pretty tight. And uh-huh. she, I read this book about panic and I passed it on to her and she said, you're right. No, the, they said, just stop. And there's something yeah. to be said for that in sobriety too because some people can sit through it and just sort of, because it will pass, you know that, it will oh. actually pass. Well. Um, so, you know, that's something right there. But also I actually tell it to, you know, where to go. And I treat myself, well, I basically treat, um <laughs> not with kick gloves I can be quite nasty about it sometimes but I also realized that I had to be my own best friend and I actually had to you know just I was my own best friend I was coaching her and if the addict comes along I just tell it to piss off because I'm talking to her so there's like a three-way conversation going on you know what I mean that's just how it works for me um, and again it's, it's been pretty, it's worked pretty well there. I can't say that I haven't not, not been tempted, but again, I, you recognize it now. We know we're in that part yeah. of the maintenance program where we see it coming and we do our best to fight it off. So, oh yeah, you know, it's, uh, I'm glad that, that we've got these tools and the toolbox is full. Um, I don't think that voice will ever completely disappear. As we know, I've known that my, you know, someone very dear to me, um, didn't have a drink for nine years and picked yeah. it up again now has stopped again, thank God. Um, but ended up having an accident as a result of it. And, oh, wow. you know, and that taught me that I can never let my guard down. Not ever.
1: No, you can't. It's, it's, you know, things will get easier. I mean, what I, what I try to tell people, you know, some of the newer people is if you're going someplace, you know, going with a plan, you've got to, y- you have to be proactive in this. This isn't something, you know, that, that just is gonna get easy and just stop no it's forever this, this is yeah forever.
0: no it is forever and
1: um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add but
0: uh, mm-hmm. I can see the train approaching the station so I was just, gonna say is there anything else you want to say because it's been an absolute absolute joy having you it really has
1: no just thank you so much and um, I love the fact that we are having these conversations. To just show people that, you know, alcohol addiction, it, it covers a wide spectrum because like if you look at both of us, you never would have guessed that we would be the ones who have issues. You yeah, know,
0: this is true. It's so true. And it doesn't discriminate. It really doesn't. doesn't. The fact is, if, you, if you keep putting it down your throat, it's this is good. You know, eventually this is what's going to happen to you. And unfortunately, we well, weren't educated back then. We are educated okay. now. We're here to educate anyone listening that wants to listen and take it on board. And again, I just want to say for all those listeners, please, again, go to SoberTownPodcast.com. It is a complete comprehensive resource. We are adding daily. There is a little village that is making this happen. Um, the person that actually drives this whole thing, he's, he's working really hard at it. he's very passionate about it drifter we love him to death and he is really putting his heart and soul into this and so are we to help you get off the devil the alcohol just put it down and my mother would say turn this switch off just turn the switch off as our poly also says to me so I want to thank you so much Jojo I can't thank you enough for your time I'm I'm sure that you will help somebody and not a lot of people I enjoy seeing you and I believe I'm going to be seeing you shortly in another Zoom this yeah, afternoon. <laughs> in about an hour. So yeah, we'll take care of yourself and I will talk to you later. All right. It's been an absolute blessing and I'll see you soon, sweetheart. All right. Thank you. All right. Take care, everyone. We'll see you soon. Bye.